All right, we'll turn with me over to Revelation chapter 11. We only have a few verses left um, in this chapter. Um, and I didn't want to get into the next chapter, so we're just going to take a little slower pace here. Um, we're going to be picking up at verse 15 through 19. In the opening of chapter 11, the first three quarters of this chapter, um, we looked at the two witnesses and how the Antichrist um, eventually was able to put them to death. They rose from the dead three days later. Um, but this marks the middle of the tribulation. Um, although not stated here, it's, it's my belief that here in chapter 11, um, uh, the, when these witnesses are uh, put to death, is probably the time that the Antichrist goes and commits the abomination of desolation. What better time, right? I mean, here's two guys that you can't kill, you can't do any harm. They cause water to turn to blood. They cause, um, you know, drought. They cause all kinds of plagues to come upon the land. People are trying to kill them. They can't kill them, but the Antichrist steps up and destroys them. It's got a little bit of equity right now. A little bit of, hey, if nobody could touch them, but I can, then that obviously I'm more powerful. It would seem like a timely um, opportunity to go and do what we know the Scripture says he's going to do. He's already, this happens in Jerusalem, so it seems likely that that happens. But they rise from the dead, and they ruin everybody's dead holiday a dead prophet holiday, um, exchanging of gifts, then they see them go up into heaven. Um, and so th this is what we studied in our, our last study. But the one thing um, that uh, we'll be, what we also saw, though, at the beginning was that there was going to be a temple. And, um, and so we see a temple at the beginning of, of chapter 11, which is an earthly temple that is yet to be built. At the end here, of this chapter, we see a heavenly temple, and we'll talk a little bit about this. I don't think we are referring to the same temple. Um, it's pretty clear from the text. But as we've made our way, we're, we're, we've gone through seals, we've gone through um, uh, trumpets, and we're going to eventually end up going through some bowl judgments. But the seven seals take place in uh, the first half of the tribulation. The first seal brings in the Antichrist. Then we see the seal, uh, second seal unleashes war upon the earth. Then there's famine in seal three. Uh, the fourth seal causes a quarter of the earth's population to be destroyed. It's tragic. Uh, the fifth seal opens up persecution on post-rapture saints. And the sixth seal brings an earthquake, stars fall from the sky, and the second uh, blackout on planet earth takes place. Um, in this time period, we read in Revelation chapter 16, uh, 6, verse 17, they, the men cry out and they say, Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Some make a distinction between the first half of the tribulation and second half and say that the first half of the tribulation is not the wrath of God, but it's the wrath of Satan, and the second half is the wrath of God. But the men who are experiencing it Say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And so um, this is a, a reason for making that distinction really is linked to when you say the tribulation is going to take place. Uh, the rapture of the church is going to take place. So those who hold to a mid-tribulation uh, view would say that the first half of the tribulation is not the wrath of God. But that is not what we read. Um, well, the seventh seal opens up seven uh, judgments that are called the seven trumpets. 
And the first one, a third of the vegetation is destroyed, then a third of the salt water, then a third of the fresh water is turned bitter, a third of the heavens are destroyed. Then the fifth, sixth, and seventh, the last three of those trumpets, pop quiz, are called the what? The three what? The three woes. So one, two, and three. The first woe, um, or the fifth trumpet, unleashes hordes of, of demons, and for five months they bring... A third blackout to the earth. A second woe, or the sixth trumpet, we see demons kill people upon the earth. So first one, they only torment them. The second woe, they actually bring death. And then the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet, is going to span the entirety of the second half of the tribulation. All the way up to the return of the Lord. And so as we begin uh, coming back into the seventh trumpet and... Um, we're really going to talk about it, and then we're going to go into another interlude, kind of another heavenly interlude, and then uh, in chapter 15, we actually pick up the bowl judgments. But the seventh trumpet is also the third woe, which is also the seven bowl judgments. So they're kind of, when you get to the end of the seals, you get to the seven trumpets. When you get to the seventh trumpet, you come to the seven bowl judgments. And so kind of just, it, it, this is how it's laid out. Um, so the bowl judgments, not there yet, but what they're going to bring is um, they're going to bring um, sores upon those who take the mark of the beast. Salt water will be turned to blood. Fresh water turned to blood. Uh, the heat of sun will scorch mankind. Global warming is real. It's coming. But it's not what everybody's thinking. And it's going to be a judgment of God upon this earth. Um, the fifth bowl will be a fourth blackout. No light upon planet Earth. The sixth is the Euphrates River is dried up. And the seventh is earthquake and hailstones. So that kind of is a real large but quick summary of, of the, uh, the book of Revelation in all of the judgment. But let's go to verse 15 and begin reading. We'll read this entire section and just come back and make some comments about it. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded. And there, was a loud, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. And actually, um, not a really good translation here. Because it's not kingdoms, it's just, and the kingdom of, um, it should be read not kingdoms, but the, the kingdom of this world have become our Lord. Our Lord's. So this is the idea. It's not there's multiple kingdoms. He only, there's only one kingdom. When he takes over. Um, so we keep on reading here. And he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 16. And 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. And your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple, verse 19, of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. So the seventh trumpet, 
the seventh trumpet causes heaven to shout for joy. It's like if you've ever been watching a sporting event and you get to like if if it's baseball and there's it comes into the ninth inning and there's this like you know dominant lead and everybody in the stands goes crazy because they know their team's about to win. I mean, you got to go through a little bit, but it's like, hey, we have this one. Um, or, you know, some play happens at the end of the game. that se- The game's not over, but it's just sealed the victory. And that's kind of what's going on here. The game's not over. There's seven bowls of judgment that are going to be experienced, and it's going to be quite ugly. There's going to be the second coming of Christ. There's going to be the battle of Armageddon. But at this point in time, heaven knows the Lord has won. And he is going to finish up as the second half, three and a half more years, uh, or 42 months, or 1,260 days. And then it's all wrapped up, and the kingdom of God will be established. So in faith, they look forward to the establishing of the kingdom of God, and that he will reign forever and ever. So you have in these few verses, verses 15 through 19, you have kind of, we rush through 42 months. And we come to the end view of the, re- of the return of Christ, uh, his defeat of all the nations and the Antichrist, and you have him ruling and reigning. It's, it's what heaven is going to sound like. You're going to hear it. You're going to be a part of it. It's what it's going to sound like when, it, when the Lord is coming back to establish his kingdom and to reign forever and ever. So the seventh trumpet, In the seventh trumpet, among other things, the seven bowls. But at the end, you have the establishing of the kingdom of God. The establishing of the kingdom of God. And so you have this roar from heaven. And heaven is celebrating this. What is this celebration all about? Well, the sovereign king is finally going to rule upon the earth. That's not something that's happened before. You know, we have in the beginning... Uh, the garden, we, we, we see the Lord in fellowship with Adam and Eve, and it goes you know, wrong real fast. And then from that time on till, all the way up until the second coming of Christ, you have kingdoms, you have kings that are ruling and reigning, and they have um, consistently brought trouble to humanity and pain upon the earth and have been self-serving. And there are many people throughout, down through the ages, all forms of government that have said, can't wait till the kingdom of God comes. And this is what heaven sees happening. The kingdom of God is coming. This is the long-awaited answer to the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's come. And heaven is seeing the fulfillment, and they are seeing the, the, you know, the answer of this prayer that has been offered up. And they rejoice. God's lordship, one author says, um, God's lordship has not been recognized by all people. Now the heavenly chorus exclaims that the entire universe has come under the sovereignty of God. The petition that is prayed as part of the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, has now become reality. So you can understand why heaven is roaring with excitement. You can understand why there are these loud voices that are uh, worshiping and giving thanks to the Lord. In Revelation 10, verses 7 through 9, we read this. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, 
When he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take, eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Well, this is the sweetness. This is the sweetness of what is being realized, is that the kingdom of God is being established. You know, going all the way back into the Old Testament, the kingdom of God is something that is in focus, that the prophets talked about. Um, Daniel chapter 2 um, gives us this image of, um, a, uh, of the kingdom of God coming. And he says, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces, the kingdoms of the world. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed, all representing empires of the world, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole, whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God is established, there'll be an obliteration of all of man's kingdoms. You know, when Satan came, came to him, he offered him, plural, the kingdoms of the world. And the Lord, he didn't, it's not stated this way, but if you can think about it, he's like, kingdoms? I'm not interested in kingdoms. I'm interested in a kingdom. And he is the only one that will ever establish a world kingdom upon this earth. Men have tried Men have sought to do this. People have got together and tried. That has never happened. It will happen when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords returns. And this is the great joy that's being expressed in heaven. We, we sang about some of this, actually, um, in our worship songs. We were rejoicing about the kingdom and being in heaven with the Lord. So Satan has had his sway and influence upon this world since man sinned in the garden. And he will have it all the way up until the second coming of Christ when he establishes his kingdom. And then it's all going to be made right. There's not going to be a trace. What we have known in this world is not going to be what the kingdom of God is like. It's going to be far different. It's going to be wonderful and it's going to be glorious. So we're reading here about the, the seventh trumpet. But I want to take a little bit of time to talk about this, that the seventh trumpet is not the last trump of God. So this is, again, it comes down to a question about the timing of the rapture. And so, again, those who would say that um, the uh, rapture happens in the middle part of the tribulation, they would look at this seventh trumpet, which is the last trumpet of the seven that we've been reading about, and they say, well, that's when the rapture is going to take place. Um, but I don't see that. So if you turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 15, 52, you can, you can understand why this, this question is out there. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, we'll reverse, actually, we'll just back up to verse 50. Uh, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And he goes on to talk about the victory we have in Christ. Now, as we go through the seventh trumpet, we're not going to read anything that sounds like that event. It's, it's, it's not there. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians. We were not there long ago on our Sunday morning study. Verses 16 and 17, actually. Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So the seventh trumpet of Revelation is the last trumpet for an unbelieving world and a nation that is being awakened. It is the last trumpet in that context. But the last trump that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15.52, is the last event of the church's calendar, if you will. So it's the last, but not every time do you read about a trumpet, do you automatically assign it to someplace else. There's got to be a contextual reason. Now, granted, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are end times you know, um, texts talking about us being caught up in the Lord, but it's very different as you read through the book of Revelation, than what you read about in those two passages. Um, so again, you know, you've probably heard this. You've probably had people talk about this and say, well, the seventh trumpet is the last trump of God. That's why I believe in a mid-tribulation. But really, it is not necessary to do that. There is a trumpet that will be blown um, and is mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's that last reference there. You see Joel chapter 2. And this does correlate uh, with the, the seventh trumpet of God. And Joel 2, verses 1 through 2, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. So, yeah, there's, there's a trumpet that's associated with judgment, but the trumpet blast that we hear of in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 is of a call to us to meet the Lord in the air, not of the beginning of seven bowl judgments. So, you know, you can take some time, you can read through this, you can study it on your own, but just I know that this is a common question that comes up, and there's a similarity of language and trumpet. Um, we have a similar context of end times, but I think it's uh, unnecessary to read these as being the same event and really um, not much contextually to uh, justify such a, a conclusion. Well, still in Revelation chapter 11, we keep on reading there, and we see that the 24 elders give thanks to the Lord. The 24 elders seem to be um, representative of the church in Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the, um, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples of the Lord. Um, we can't be emphatic about it, but that seems to be a pretty good um, you know, uh, conclusion. We talked about this earlier. But you know what we see here is that they fell on their faces and worshiped God. You know, it's interesting that the book of Revelation has so much worship in it. I mean, right at the beginning to the very end, there's just, it's worship, it's worship, it's worship, because people are encountering the Lord. You know, a lot of people will say things like, 
you know, when I see God, I'm going to ask him. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. You're going to fall on your face and you're going to worship God as either the first time and the last time or you will fall on your face and worship him as you've been doing in this lifetime. But everybody's going to fall on their face before God and they're all going to worship him. They're all going to give him the glory that that he is due because he is that awesome. He is that majestic. He is that beautiful. He's that fearful of a being that when we see him, we will fall down before him and worship him. Not, and we talked about this on Sunday, not in condemnation, like I don't belong in your presence, because, again, of that justification that we have in Jesus, and we read about in Jude chapter 1, verse 21 through 24, of how we will be presented before his presence faultless with exceeding joy. So we're, we're, going to, we're going to feel like we belong there. But nonetheless, he is so awesome and he is so amazing. And these who have been before his throne for some time still continue to fall down on their faces and worship God. May we never become so familiar with being in the presence of God that we, we're, we're no longer humbled before him. We're no longer awed before him. We're no longer amazed by him. Yeah, I know that song. I know that song. I know this. I know that. Oh, look at them bowing down. What are they doing bowing down? I remember when I used to bow down. I don't bow down anymore. And we're proud of these things? There still should be this holy reverence, this holy awe that comes over us. And the inhabitants of heaven have that holy awe still. In verse 17, we see what they have to say. And they give thanks to the Lord for, for establishing his kingdom. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. I mean, it's easy to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? Because all of us have at one point in our life as followers of the Lord, it's like, Lord, just come back and just set it straight, Lord. Just set up your kingdom. Enough of this. Lord, we need you and your righteous rule and not the whims and the, and the corruption of mankind. We need you, Lord. And, and heaven, when they see the Lord preparing to come and to establish his kingdom, they say, thank you. Oh, Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, we thank you that you have gone to war and that you have prevailed. You are the eternal one who was and is and is to come. And you have reigned with your power. He's established himself not by trickery, not by some, you know, uh, key plans that just happened to fall into place that allowed for somebody to come to power. I, I, I'm always watching, does anybody else watch like a lot of World War I and World War II like documentaries? I, I, I always are watching these and, and I just watched one and in this, they said that um, a, a British soldier met Adolf Hitler on the battlefield, had him, the gun pointed at him, and did not shoot. Because in World War I, there came a time when they were just, they weren't fighting. They were at war, but they weren't fighting, and just let him walk away. Think about that. 
And, and, and it's like, to all, you know, well, all these little events fell into place and things were going, all, going um, you know, bad financially in, in Germany and this was happening and that was happening. And I mean, all of these events just kind of fell into place to just allow this, this crazy guy to do what he did. Well, it's not like that. There's no trickery. There's no deceit. It is just the power of God to rule and reign because he is the king. And so heaven is rejoicing that he is establishing his kingdom. Now we can, in faith, and we do, and we just did, and again in our songs, praise the Lord and thank the Lord in faith that his kingdom is coming and that he's going to reign with his power. So it may be bad now, um, but it is, there are days coming when the Lord will set it straight. In verses 18, we see that the wrath of God continues The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged and you that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The Lord is pouring out his judgment against those who are angry with God. The nations were angry. They were angry at God. Let us go and make war against God. They were angry against his chosen people. They were angry against anybody who were followers of Jesus Christ and had a testimony and worshipped the Lamb. They were angry at anybody who would not take the mark of the beast. And the Lord has met their anger with his wrath. And he has come at the end, it says, to destroy those who destroyed the earth. And and we think of the Antichrist. We think of the false prophet and, and all the the trouble that he's brought upon the earth. You know, the idea of this word of uh, the, uh, the wrath of God is the idea of um, a settled, I, I'm sorry, not the wrath, the, the anger. The nations were angry. This isn't like a, um, you know, like a, a quick explosive, you know, thing that just made you mad. This is, Something that is of a a deep, settled resentment that has been ongoing for some time. That's what's community. It's not like, oh, they just got caught up in a, a, you know, unaware moment and they got angry at God. No, 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 no. They've been settled in their resentment and their hostility towards God for quite some time. Like Pharaoh, who continued to harden his heart against the Lord time after time after time, given all of these opportunities, but his heart would be hardened. And sometimes God hardened his heart, and then he would harden his heart, and God would allow his hardened state to be resolved in that place. It's that kind of anger that we're reading about that they have towards the Lord. And so the Lord has come, and he's poured out his wrath upon the earth. In the middle of uh, this section, verse 18, in the middle of verse 18, we, we see that they also praise the Lord, not just because his wrath had come against that anger, but also because of the reward that comes with God. When God comes in the end, he comes to judge, but he also comes to reward. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. The Bible repeatedly, repeatedly promises rewards for those who live their lives for the Lord and walk in his ways. The Bible talks about this. Um, and I want to just go through a few of the references. 2 Timothy 4.8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, 
will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A crown of righteousness will be given. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. As a crown of righteousness, we have the crown of life. Again, Revelation uh, 2.10 talks about the crown of life. It says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful until you die, because I'm giving you eternal life. You're going to die. Be faithful because what I have for you when you are faithful unto death is eternal life. You'll never die again. And 1 Peter 5.4 says that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Every crown we could possibly obtain in this life, what does it do? It fades away. It fades away. It will have no meaning eventually. But the crown of glory that the Lord wants to give us will be one that will never lose its excitement or its sparkle or its joy or that sense of honor. You know, for some, I think of athletes, you know, who work so hard and, you know, they achieve, you know, the pinnacle of their sport, whatever it might be. And they or if it's the Olympics and they get that gold medal and, you know, they always look back on that moment you got to look back and they got to try and remember what it was like because it fades. You know, you, you don't walk around with that, you know, that emotional, you know, high that you have in that moment for the rest of your life. You don't do that. I remember when Tyler was playing uh, football and there were some great people in this community that were his coaches and, and stuff. But his little team, they won the championship. I don't know what. Were they third grade or something like that? I don't know. You won the championship. And I remember um, the coaches saying, no, well, actually, I think it was ahead. He says, if you win the championship this, this next week, that's something somebody can never take away from you. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Already in third grade, we're talking about that. I don't think they're going to even remember this. You know, that's just my thought. And it fades away. And even if you do remember it, you got to go back and try and remember what it was like. Not the crown of glory. It's going to be present at all times. The joy of the Lord's honor and his um, reward to you is always going to be the, the rejoicing of your heart. It's never going to wane. It's never going to wax. It's never going to rust. It's never going to get dingy. It's beautiful. And so this is what the Lord has to offer. And the Lord wants to motivate us to live our lives correctly because of these rewards. Paul understood this. Some will say, well, I don't allow rewards to motivate me. Well, maybe you ought to read this verse before you say that. Because 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Oh, we're supposed to run that we might get the reward. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. 
But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. So for Paul, the reward, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, hearing the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant, it changed the way he lived his life. We all want to hear the Lord's approval. We all want to be welcomed in and have a glorious entry. You know, some will be saved, but as though by fire. You made it. You got the glory of life and you have the glory, but you're not going to be rewarded for the life that you've lived here. You have salvation and that's great. And some may think, well, you know, if I'm there and I don't have that, that's okay. I'm not really into crowns. No, 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 wait, wait. Do you know what we're going to do with those crowns? Does anybody know? What are we going to do with our crowns? We're going to put them at the feet of Jesus. You're going to care. You're going to care. You're going to want that opportunity to, to lay something at his feet. You don't have to raise your hand. But isn't it bad when you go to a place and you are exchanging Christmas, you don't think you're exchanging Christmas gifts and somebody gives you a Christmas gift? It's like, oh, no. You know, that never feels good. Oh, good, I got a, got a gift. Sorry, I didn't get you one, but I love this. You never feel that way. Like, I wish they wouldn't have got me anything. I wish they wouldn't have got me anything. We want to lay something at the feet of Jesus. We want to give him a gift, and this is our motivation. So live your life. Run in such a way. You may obtain it. Compete for the prize. Discipline your body. Don't allow your flesh. Don't allow your urges. Don't allow your passions. Don't allow these things to take, to take you away from completing the race that is set before you. In Revelation 22, verses 12 through 14. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Jesus seems a little excited about this. Which again, we can really understand that. You get the gift, you go buy the gift, you plant, you, you work it all out, you, you take the time. You can't wait for people to open the gifts you give to them. We love to give gifts. And Jesus loves to give gifts. And he's just saying, hey, I'm coming quickly. And guess what? I've got something for you. I'm coming back and I've got something for you. To give everyone according to his work. That's what it says. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And, and isn't that kind of what we, we read, the everyone emphasis there in the middle of verse 18? Uh, that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name. What does it say? Small and great. Everybody in the kingdom of God will be rewarded by the King of Kings according to our work. Now that's not salvation. Salvation is the work of the Lord. And we obtain that through faith. But the reward that the Lord wants to give us is according to our works. These are two different things. And so we're not, we're not like, if you come and you don't have, in your life, according to your works, you get nothing. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. Because that is something that's secure in the Lord. But I'm in charge of what rewards I'm going to get. You know, I believe that each and every one of us has a to-do list. It's a to-do list. It's not a honey-do list. It's a God-do list. And we, we need to look at that seriously. 
You know, because Paul talks about um, to the Corinthians that how we could have loss of reward if we don't, you know, live properly. How can you lose a reward you haven't gotten? How could you lose a reward that you've yet to receive? And I think it's because the Lord has plans to give you something according to the to-do list and the spiritual gifts that he's given to you. And then we need to walk these out that we might receive it. Every parent has wanted to do something for their kid that they've had to postpone because they were acting poorly and acting like a brat or whatever. Like, well, I'm not going to give it now. I'll have to wait till later. And, and so the Lord has something for each and every one of us. And so Jesus says, I'm coming. And I'm going to give it to everyone. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So, some pretty important stuff. The, the 24 elders are worshiping and giving thanks because the Lord has established his kingdom. They're worshiping and giving thanks because he is bringing rewards. And he is giving rewards. It must be pretty amazing. If it's recorded in scripture this many times, and if those who are in the presence of God all the time decide to write a new song that has a few lines in it about the rewards. And then right before Jesus comes, he says, hang on, hang on, I'm coming quickly, and I've got stuff for you. It must be pretty amazing. And I don't think we're going to want to miss out on what the Lord has for us. Don't allow the glitz and the shiny things of this world to keep you from that which is going to last forever. Verse 19, there in Revelation 11. So, and here we see that there's an open door of fellowship. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. So this verse declares one of the greatest joys that will be found in heaven, and that is... To be in the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. It was a box that was, that was overlaid with gold. It was put into the most holy part, the most innermost part of the tabernacle. And then eventually in Solomon's temple um, into the Holy of Holies behind a veil, right? And the high priest could go in there once a year. And when he would go in there, he would take the blood from the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat or the lid, right? And it was, in, in there was the, the, the commandments that the nation had broken, and there was a lid that was covering it, there was the blood that was put on it, and the idea is things are atoned for, and you're coming into the presence of the Lord. And they had this on the earth. This is something that was made. Moses got the instructions. They built it. But it was built off of a copy. It wasn't the original. We just read about the original. The original is in heaven. There's a temple in heaven. And there's a, a, an Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And, and this, again, to, to the Jews, it represented you know, coming and meeting with the Lord. Um, turn with me to Numbers chapter 7, verse 
Numbers chapter 7, verse 89. If you got a new Bible, all your pages are stuck together, right? Unless you just happen to love chapter 7. But look, look at verse 89 with me. Now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat. That was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke with him. What is it? What's going on here? There at the mercy seat, there is fellowship with God. There at the mercy seat, there where the ark of the covenant is, is the presence of the Lord. And it's there that he communed with the Lord. And this is what we should be doing. In Hebrews Chapter 9, verse 7, it talks about how the high priest only entered the Holy of Holies once a year. Um, but in Hebrews, excuse me, in, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus died on the cross, we read that um, in verses 51 through 53, that the veil of the temple, as Jesus hung on the cross, that it was ripped in two from top to bottom. And behind that veil was what? The Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of the Lord. That veil was there to keep people out. Don't come behind here except for once a year. Again, Hebrews 9, 7. But that was ripped wide open, which was communicating something. That communication was available. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And let's read verses, um, beginning at verse 19 together. Hebrews 10. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the part behind the veil, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. So as the Lord's flesh was torn, that physical veil was torn. Opening the way. Verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. Look at it. Here it is. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling together uh, ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. The veil was ripped open, providing a new way for us to come, and the exhortation is to draw near. Well, what happens when you draw near? Well, number 789, you commune with God and he speaks with you. And so as we read here in Revelation that there is a temple, that's the real temple, and then the plans that Moses got were a copy of that temple. So if you're like, man, we never got to see the temple, don't worry about it. You're going to see it. You're going to see a few of them, actually. You're going to see the one that's in the, you know, in the days of, um, that, that, that Ezekiel prophesied about, the millennial temple. But you're going to get to see the temple that's in heaven. And, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. It's open. It's not behind a veil. Open access to come and to fellowship with the Lord. So again, the point here in verse 19 is that there is an open door of fellowship. 
And that each of us need to take that exhortation that the writer of Hebrews gives and draw near, draw near to the Lord and commune with him and let him speak with you. Let him reveal his heart to you. Let him correct you. Let him comfort you. And if you'll take the time, if we will take the time to go behind the veil and meet with the Lord, don't put them on a, you know, on a stopwatch. Just to go and meet with the Lord. You, you'll encounter him. Because he has said, if you seek after me with what? All your heart. Not part of your heart. Guys, does it work with your wife when you give her half of your attention? I did that today. I was, she, Rebecca, um, I don't even remember what, still what she told me. Um, but uh, <laughs> what was it that we were talking about? It's so important. It's not even really, um, it's not important, but we were, what was it we were talking about? Oh, yeah, the shirt. That's right, the shirt. I, I said, she had said something, I'm going to go to the gym, and then I'm going to come home and iron your shirt. And I guess like two minutes later, I said, I go, hey, by the way, if you get a chance, iron your shirt. She's like, were you listening to me? I'm like, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, undivided attention is what, so she laughed at me. It wasn't an argument. She just laughed at me. She goes, you're terrible. You are just, you are really, she says something about being a male or something like that, you know, just, you can do one thing at a time. That's Okay. They want our undivided attention. Seek after the Lord with all your heart. He's worthy of it. He deserves it. And so don't pull back, as he goes on to say, right? Don't begin to waver in your confession. He who promised is faithful. Promised what? He's promised a lot. We've talked a lot about his promises, his kingdom. He's talk, we've talked about the rewards. His promise to, to meet with you if you seek after him. He's, he's going to be faithful. And so go and get alone with the Lord. So as we wrap it up here, a glorious kingdom is coming. And the Lord will be at the center of it. He is coming quickly, but he's coming and he's going to bring rewards. And he's going to give them to those who have done the God list have done what the Lord has given to him. The kingdom it was going to be established at the end of the seventh trumpet, before we really even get into the, you know, the first bowl of the seven trumpets. Heaven's already anticipating the kingdom. I hope you're anticipating the kingdom. They do it in faith. We can do it in faith. And so listen, if you're here tonight or you're listening on the radio, and you have yet to become a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a glorious kingdom that's coming that the Lord will establish in his own time. We don't get to direct him. He's not looking for our advice of when it should begin. And he's not, you know, moved by, our, by man's, you know, questioning and mocking that it's been so long. God has a timetable. He dwells outside of time. We call it a long time, and to him it's nothing. He will establish his kingdom when he's good and ready. But when he establishes it, you want to be a part of it. And the only way you can be a part of it is to come to the Lord, to come to his son, Jesus Christ, and submit yourself to him, to call him your king. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever the sovereignty of God is recognized. Has the kingdom of God begun? 
hope it's begun in your heart. Uh, hopefully, the sovereignty of God has been recognized. If you have not recognized the sovereignty of God in your life, then the kingdom of God has not begun. Now listen, there's going to be a fulfillment of it, a fullness that's going to happen that we just talked about it when it physically is established. But spiritually, practically, that kingdom can start right here, right now. And if it hasn't started, if you've not submitted to the sovereignty of the Lord and acknowledged him as king over your life, you need to do that. And then you too can have the hope that these 24 elders are rejoicing over that one day you'll be with the Lord and you'll be a part of the physical kingdom.